You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Crew, this is Mark Hadmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Today, let's call this one Pioneers of the Sea. Uh, we're going to be discussing uh, one, uh, you know, we'll call it a hoss of Western civilization decides to venture out there and uh, see how things are done uh, among some indigenous folks. Uh, we're going to be talking about the story of Mr. Alain Gerbeau, uh, interesting, fascinating human being. Alain Gerbeau was uh, born in France in 1894, served in the First World War as a pilot. Those are the early days of wood and canvas wings. I right? keep that in mind. And we've got, a, I mean, we've got over 50 percent uh, uh, kill rate there, meaning you don't survive in those days. And during the worst of it, he and two other companions vowed that once the war was over, they were going to escape civilization or whatever their poor definition of it was at that time if they survived. Uh, both his companions were killed, but Gerbeau followed through on his promise. And in 1923, he decided to sail single-handed to New York. It was a voyage of 142 days all by his lonesome. So we got a guy who was a World War I pilot and decides to sail by himself. 142 days. He remained in uh, Newark long enough to win the Davis Cup tournament at Forest Hills. And then he proceeded on his way to the South Seas. He was uh, searching for an uninhabited island where he might settle. Now, during all of his wanderings, he wound up writing a book, of which we're going to be taking a few extracts from. And that book is called In Quest of the Sun. And uh, this was uh, written in 1929. Uh, and we'll go ahead. We'll get to the the extracts here in a moment. But the, the, what happened after the the book is just as fascinating. He returned to the United States, lectured for a few years, uh, and then decided, you know, uh, this still isn't my cup of tea. This whole civilization thing. So in uh, 1932, he sets out for Polynesia again, and he was uh, last heard from in uh, 1944. And uh, later on, it was reported that he might have died on the island of Timor in 1941. No one's quite sure, but uh, he definitely returned to the area where he found, uh, well, he clearly didn't find our civilization, his cuppa, so he went out and found uh, other areas. Now, the section we're talking about was he's visiting the uh, series of archipelagos, uh, the Mangareva, the, particularly the pearl divers of Mangareva. And this is uh, fascinating uh, to me. This is one of the extracts that led me to getting my uh, free diving certification. It's not the, uh, I'm not really interested in the modern manifestation, which is just going for longest breath holds ever and absolute uh, depth descents. I'm just looking for smooth fluidity the way I see it whenever we see, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 sea gypsies, the sea gypsies, the Moken who, who go down low. Just as, just as fascinating as the, uh, the plane tribes are, than the Woodlands tribes are, and yeah, many of the uh, Maasai tribes are uh, in Africa. Where also, I found many of the Polynesian tribes fascinating. Let's go ahead and take a look at some of these uh, extracts here whenever he's visiting amongst these uh, pearl divers. Uh, this is from his book, quote, I rode hard for a long time and was still a long way from the diving ground when I saw emerging from the water the heads of three natives wearing spectacles. We'll get to those spectacles here in a moment. Alone in the middle of the lagoon, two miles from the land and in 15 fathoms of water. Now keep in mind, fathoms are uh, six, uh, six feet, so 15 fathoms of water, uh, which were infested with sharks, and these three heads were laughing merrily enough and seemed perfectly at their ease. I approached the them, full of curiosity to find that each diver kept himself afloat with a bundle of hibiscus wood to which was attached a net into which the oysters would be put. 
They told me that a sailing cutter had dropped them there during the morning and would be back to fetch them during the afternoon. He's got an exclamation mark there for emphasis, and then they disappeared beneath the surface. So let's uh, kind of keep that in mind there. Two miles out, they hitch a ride on a cutter, grab a bundle of wood, and hop in. And their gear, again, these uh, spectacles he's referring to, these are homemade diving goggles. And this is, uh, keep in mind, free diving now, no one wears goggles because the amount of uh, pressure, the suction pressure on the eyes, you uh, move off. It's not even a snorkeling mask. You've got to move off to a free diving mask. Of course, uh, uh, we, we have a better technology now. But at the same time, thinking about these guys were doing exactly what's being done now. Then with homemade substandard gear, this should also be a good lesson to uh, you don't have to pursue the perfect gear, wait for the perfect time, wait for the perfect thing. Almost everything we do now that we think we need this or that for, nah, it was already being done, discovered, uh, done better and you know pioneered way before we got there so for waiting for the gear that's usually just an excuse not to go now let's uh, get back to this uh, extract uh, quote much further on some outrigger canoe from akamaru made a compact group each contained a couple of natives they greeted my appearance with cries of delight and offered me oranges and manioc and manioc being cassava or yuca it's a starchy root and i also want to keep in mind here this is uh, almost uh, common in every single extract you're going to find of these uh, early days of uh, meeting the Polynesian tribes. This universal joy and laughter and welcoming. I mean, I think we can all get behind that. No wonder whenever he got back to civilization on both sides of the pond, he's like, I'm going back to where everyone's sweet and smiling all the time. Now, back to the extract. One of them uh, told me that they would die for me and open a shell in my honor. He went it down in the depth of some ten fathoms, and keep in mind, that's 60 feet, folks. <laughs> that is no mean feat. And soon afterwards reappeared with an oyster in, uh, in his hand. When he opened it, it did not reveal the hope for pearl, which was not very surprising. You had to keep in mind that the proportion of oysters containing po or pearls, uh, po is what it was called there, is uh, it's only one in several thousand. So uh, you got to dive a lot to find the pearl in there. But the mother of pearl, the shell itself, however, was given uh, to him as a souvenir. And afterwards, uh, they, they swallowed the oyster with a squeeze of lime juice just uh, floating right there in the middle of that lagoon. Uh, back to the extract. Suddenly, one of the divers gave a loud shout of delight as he spotted a particularly rich bed and prepared to dive. He took uh, off his hat and clothes, and stark naked, he seemed a veritable young bronze god. Lowering himself slowly in the water, keeping one hand at the outrigger, he got ready for the dive. First off, he took several deep breaths, exhaling with a curious sort of whistle that could be heard from afar. I believe that this, this is still him speaking. I believe that this whistle is peculiar to the divers, the Tuamaro, and I can't imagine that it serves any other purpose than to regulate the respiration, unquote. Now, that's a valuable ob observation because this whistling breath is likely a way to uh, uh, center your mind and what you're doing the breath because for free diving, yes, it is very much about, you know, as some people would say, man, isn't it just holding your breath? Yeah, it's, it's a bit more, um, yes, on the surface, yes, but uh, there is far more to it than that. And you're going to have to get to a meditative place for it. And also, so uh, an engineering place, make sure you are regulating well. And I'd say the whistle is probably a learned attribute, as he was noticing amongst these divers, to teach them how to get this, uh, this proper intake of breath, the, relax uh, the relaxation breath leading up to it, and then the actual uh, the ability to, to go down deeper. And again, we've got uh, Mr. G uh, Alain here. Uh, he is a Gabal. He's noticing right then with firsthand observation that, oh, okay, I, I reckon this is what this is. He's not falling for any sort of a magical uh, explanation for it. He's applying some uh, good engineering uh, mind to it to see whether these, these folks know. 
Back to the extract. Like all pearl divers, he wore homemade wooden spectacles. The glasses fixed in with glue to preserve the eyes from ophthalmic damages often uh, to be met with underwater. Uh, I'm going to stop there just a moment again. Nowadays, no one will free dive with uh, goggles because of uh, the, the suction on the eye socket. And yet these guys were hidden 60, fathom, I mean, uh, I mean 60 feet easily. Uh, and, uh, and beating this, it's uh, later on we got, uh, it, trust me, it is far more comfortable to dive with a free diving mask, way more than a scuba diving mask, and then the mask over the goggles, and all the way down the line, but it shows that these things can be done, you can find the hacks around it, which these people are finding hacks around it, finding a way to depressurize around the eye as well, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, back to the extract. Uh, at last, uh, some, uh, after some minutes of deep respiration, he disappeared beneath the surface and soon afterward came up with a shell in his hand. While he was down below his comrade, uh, his comrades followed every moment anxiously, ready to go to his help if he were attacked by a shark to assist him in the case of accident. We're still in the extract here. As they plunge into the water, divers grip their noses with one hand and assist that at a depth of more than five fathoms, they insist that at a depth of more than five fathoms, the air is expelled through the ears. But the possibility of this is, now this, that was the, uh, the tribe speaking, say they expelled through the ears, which would be a common mistake to make, because when you're learning how to do proper pressurization, you've got to clear those cestation tubes, and if you clear it properly, you do hear a distinct popping, and the sensation is as if air were moving through, uh, I mean, air was moving through that eustachian tube, which exactly it is so if you're saying using the metaphor of breathing through the ears you're and essentially you're not breathing through it but we do understand where that analogy would come into play but even here we have uh, mr gobo is not fooled by that he's, he's speculating even at that point because we go back to the text and he says um, according to the air being spelled through the ears he says quote but the possibility of this has been finally disproven by scientists and this idea probably originates from the illusion caused by the pressure of water on the uh, tympanum Good divers remain, as a rule, from one to two minutes underwater and are more anxious to make a number of descents than to break the record for long submersions, unquote. Now, I find, for me, this is uh, possible. Where you take and kind of gamify what was uh, a subsistence culture. Uh, I mean, well, these people were diving to, uh, you know, have the pearls, to have the food, and often these people were diving for fun. But it seems to be uh, one to two minutes is about it. We're not going for extension. Sometimes you could have for play to uh, shoot these on further, but almost all the... Uh, diving cultures, indigenous diving cultures, you're going to find them two minutes is about the max, 90 seconds is about uh, the average. So it's, uh, and to keep in mind, this is working at me as well. It's not just, you know, sitting there timing yourself, holding your breath, Wim Hof style to see how long you can do it. You're actually having to work uh, under these loads. So it's not how long, it's how fluent and how often and how persistent and how smooth you can be under these briefer durations, but also working under these, under these pressures. So even here we're finding, uh, again, this, uh, this extract is being the the book is produced in, uh, in 1929 and how many of these things had already been hacked for ahead of time and how often, uh, how well. I mean, that's, this is just so many of these extracts within this book gives a great example of how much information can still be found if we're good archaeologists about this. Now, this last little bit I'm going to give you is nothing about technique or t uh, tactics. I just want to give an example of the how lovely it was uh, to sit around, how often uh, we would be have a privilege to you know, sit around with such joyous folks. Uh, toward the evening, the dugouts began to come in, and I accepted the invitation to some 
natives of Pasadena on the little islet where they built uh, huts of scraps of corrugated iron. Uh, there we made meal in an open air of which the memory will always remain vivid. There were bananas boiled in water, oysters that had been grilled one after the other on wooden skewers, and poi poi, at least five years old, poi poi is the fermented paste of the breadfruit tree, wrapped in leaves and kept in the ground. It has a smell like some of our strongest cheeses, and few Europeans get to like it. It constitutes the principal food of the natives, unquote. He goes on to talk about when it's finally time to leave these folks, how often they said, no, stay here, live with us. And he talks about that tug of really wanting to, but he says the call of the sea is more so when he heads out. And of course, we know once he gets back to civilization, he stays there for a bit, changes his mind. He said, no, I need to get back out there and be free. Uh, again, I've offered this entire extract because one, I thought it was absolutely lovely, and I love it when we see such a good engineering mind pay attention to what's really going on, trying to see how something is done, and then we have a, a first-hand experience of him observing it, and then being amongst the people themselves, really, they were trying to explain to him how they did it, and they weren't doing it in magical terms, just doing their best with a second language, uh, crossing that language barrier to go, you know, get across something completely uh, sensible and good engineering, good tactics, and, you know, it could be used for survival or, you know, just feeding yourself or are having fun. So anyway, at the end of the next track, hopefully you find it as fascinating uh, as I did. And again, if uh, thanks for listening to this, like, support, subscribe to the podcast. And when you get to actually doing more of these things, uh, have a look at our Black Box Project over there at ExtremeSelfProtection.com. Order Indigenous Ability Blog and uh, where we just cover hundreds and hundreds of these things and actually get out there and do these things instead of just reading about them and listening to them. So take care of yourself, crew. Let's be as joyous as these Polynesian folks. Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, extremeselfprotection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics. <laughs>